Welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast, helping you invest well, understand money and achieve the best tax outcomes. Your hosts today are Andrew Sykes, Chris Oates and Young Han. Hey everybody, welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast. I'm your host today, Andrew Sykes. I'm joined in the studio by Young. Hi everyone. And by Chris. G'day, everyone. Today, we're also going to be joined by uh, David Pierce from the Centre for International Economics, and we're going to have a talk about climate change. So we're going to unpick a bit about climate change, see what it's uh, about, some of the economics behind it. So welcome to this uh, to the uh, podcast, David. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm an economist. Um, uh, I'm at the Centre for International Economics. And I've been working on climate change and related issues probably for about 30 years now, from way back in the days before the uh, Kyoto Protocol was even was even mentioned. Um, and we've done climate change projects for lots of different clients, I guess, including in Australia and overseas. So it's been interesting to observe the evolution, I guess, of views and understanding of climate change as an, as an economic problem over the last 30 years. You must have seen some um, change there. It's gotten, it's gotten very serious lately and uh, we've, we've seen um, you know, protesters getting sent to jail. Uh, we've seen things like the new uh, sculpture of a drowning girl in a Spanish river. It's, it's, it's gotten very heated over the last couple of years. It has, and I, and I think there's lots of reasons for that. But one of the interesting things is that, you know, 30 years ago when I started, people weren't that sure about what the temperature record was showing and what the evidence about climate change was showing. Uh, now, 30 years later, you know, it's much, much clearer. It's certainly not, we don't have 100% certainty, but it's much clearer that something's going on. We feel it. Like last they... year was a bushfire. This year we got rainy days every single day and, we're in, you know, it's cold. It's supposed to be hot and, you know, enjoying the summer, but no. Middle of December and you've got the heater on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if we talk about the economics of climate change, David, what what are the main economic threats of climate change? Um, there's a number of different ones that have been identified and people have attempted to estimate over the years. One of the major ones for a country like Australia is sea level rise. Um, that's clearly a, a big issue for many of our, our co- well, because most of our big cities, of course, are on the coast. So sea level rise is one. The other one is agricultural productivity. What we're seeing is um, you know, more droughts, but also more floods, so more difficulties in maintaining agricultural productivity. Uh, a third one is just the issue of, of natural disasters and the extent to which they're exacerbated by climate change. So we've mentioned bushfires, floods and so on. Um, and then another one is, is heat stress in general, uh, particularly for populations that need to work outside. Um, so there's a number of different elements that people have I've tried to estimate over the years. Yeah, and that's there. There's some of those um, threats. We we see so much about uh, coal, and if you look at what some climate uh, change scientists are saying, that the best thing we could do is to stop burning coal. Um, there's obviously some practicalities around that. Uh, what's what it's its economic benefit to Australia? Why would we keep on mining and exporting coal? Well, coal's um, an important component of 
at least two of the state economies in, in, in Australia, New South Wales and Queensland. Um, I think there's estimates around um, one was done by the, by the New South Wales Treasury as part of their um, intergenerational report that if you, if you stopped coal mining, if you like, it would reduce New South Wales um, gross state product, so a measure of total output, by around about 1%, um, with a bigger, much bigger impact um, in particular regions. And for Queensland, it's probably an effect almost one or two times that, so 2 to 3% reduction in Queensland's gross state product compared with what it would otherwise have been. Um, if if we stop coal mining, so they're for a single commodity, they're they're a fairly big impact. So I think we've seen an estimate somewhere that it's what two to six percent of GDP if we were to stop coal. So the two to six percent of GDP is um, what some estimates are of the cost of climate change itself to the Australian economy. Um, so there's there's a range of of estimates around, but. If climate change continues, and depending on what the um, um, ultimate temperature increase is, Australia's GDP could end up, you know, as much as six percent lower than it would otherwise have been the case. So that's the effect of climate change itself, and then the effect of, say, reducing coal um, production uh, in Australia, Australia-wide, it's probably of the order of about a one percent reduction in GDP from from coal itself. I think the key is that it's a something new we've ever experienced. So we don't have enough data to actually say if we do this, that that's going to be the impact, therefore we need to do this. And I think that's why it's so hard to um, balance between the climate change and the economic impact that we're going to experience. Yeah, but it does seem that the, a lot of the heat in the uh, coal argument, if I can use that term, a lot of the heat in the coal argument is because um, of the disproportionate impact on some regions. Is that a fair comment, David? I think, I think that's right. I mean, coal mining... Um, is is very very important. We see it in New South Wales, in the Hunter region. There's a, a huge amount of economic activity geared around coal mining, and similarly in parts of Queensland, uh, they're they're very important activities and have been traditionally in particular regional areas. You see the same issue um, um, also in Victoria and Gippsland, where brown coal it's not traded, but brown coal is used for uh, electricity generation in Victoria. The same regional issues as um, as brown coal is is phased out. So there's an adjustment that needs to take place uh, within particular regions as as we reduce um, production of coal. And David, there's been you see lots of talk about reducing emissions and net zero targets and and the likes. Why should Australia reduce the emissions? So basically, it's it's everyone. So it's really all countries should reduce emissions. And I guess that the argument is that it's in Australia's interest to be part of international efforts to reduce emissions um, because Australia's emissions are relatively small um, compared with the rest of the world, compared with US, China, India, Brazil, for example. Um, but the, so the effects of climate change on us are not due so much to our own emissions but due to emissions from other countries. So what we'd really like to do is persuade every other country in the world um, to lower their emissions so that the potential effects on us are reduced. But obviously, in order to do that, we need to be part of this international um, mechanism, if you like, this international effort. 
Um, and it's also true, though, that at the margin, every tonne of our emissions is also affecting other countries in terms of climate change effects on them. So it's really important that we have a, an international um, effort here, if you like, to reduce emissions. It's very often phrased in terms of, oh, Australia has to reduce our emissions, but our emissions are very small, so it won't make any difference, so we shouldn't bother. Um, the real argument is how do we convince the rest of the world to lower their emissions so that the climate effects of climate change on us are minimised. And the way that trading agreements between countries, if the more people sign up to the net zero targets, then there might be trade restrictions on countries that aren't involved in it. Do you see that as being a risk? Uh, that, that's a possibility. In fact, it's, it's been explicitly talked about by countries in Europe, for example, these so-called carbon tariffs, so that if you're a country that's seeking to reduce emissions, um, you, will, you may put a tariff or a trade restriction on the exports from other countries that aren't reducing their emissions. So that, that is a risk. It's been... It's an idea that's been around, floated actually for, for many, many years, way back in the 1997 when Australia or when the Kyoto Protocol was, um, was ratified. That was also an issue. Um, it's very hard to know, you know, the extent to which th th this will actually happen, but obviously it would, that would create extra costs, I think, um, from trying to reduce emissions if countries then also restrict trade. It's like a prisoner's dilemma that we are all in. And um, what, what's your view on that, how the country should work together in this situation? Yeah, it, it is a bit of a prisoner's dilemma. That's something that um, Professor Ross Garno referred to back when he um, did his, his very big review in the, in the mid-2000s. The idea is that we want everyone to reduce their emissions but it's, it's also in the narrow interest of any one country to have other countries reduce their emissions but not reduce your own emissions. And so the prisoner's dilemma is how do you get people to actually, or how do you get countries in this case, um, to actually agree to something and stick to it and not sort of default and, and, um, and do something that you, that you um, and sorry, and not do something that you've said you're going to do. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult internationally nego international negotiation that, that takes place. And we saw with the, with the recent um, uh, meeting of the parties, so-called conference of the parties in Glasgow, where really only, only in the very last minute did everyone come together and agree to something. There was a lot of posturing and a lot of you know, difficulties in coming to an agreement. And that's because of the, the underlying economics, this prisoner's dilemma component of international climate change negotiations. So if I understand what you're saying is that for, for me to reduce my emissions is going to cause me some, there'll be a cost there, but I'm uncertain whether you're going to do the right thing and bear some pain as well. Um, and in particular, uh, if, if I didn't do what I said I was going to do, I'd get an advantage if you did do what you were going to do, said you were going to do. That, that's right. That's exactly this, the dilemma. And um, the, the, the economics of climate change, of, well, emissions reductions, is that you have the, the costs of reducing your own emissions happen now or almost immediately, and the benefits you're going to get from that happen a long way in the future. Um, and so you have exactly the dilemma that you described, Andrew, and, and, and particularly because the benefits 
are a long way in the future, it creates a political issue because most politicians don't think that far ahead. They're thinking two or three years ahead. Yeah, they may, they may think that with um, new uh, voters coming through who are far more conscious of this uh, as an issue. So if we, if we consider it like that, what's the economic upside of um, climate change for Australia? So if we were to change our economy, what's our upside? The upside is that that we have we're potentially quite rich in some of the resources that will be needed in a in a sort of transformed energy economy. I mean, first of all, we have the potential for lots of solar energy. You know, we have much much more sunshine uh, than most other countries, uh, and similarly, but possibly to a lesser degree, with wind. Um, we also have resources like copper. Um, lithium and other resources, which will, which will be an essential part of electrifying economy. So if you think about electric vehicles, um, they use a lot of copper uh, and the batteries for electric vehicles use a lot of lithium. So we potentially have um, those sorts of resources. Uh, and there's also a very optimistic push in Australia towards hydrogen, the hydrogen economy. There's a, there's a strong view in some quarters that we have very, very good potential to be able to generate or produce uh, so-called green hydrogen. Uh, so that's also an opportunity for Australia. So you mentioned about hydrogen um, economy. Can you just tell us a bit more about that? So what, what it is is hydrogen is, is not a fuel as such. It's, it's a way of storing and transporting energy. So um, hydrogen can be produced essentially in two ways. One, uh, by running electricity through water, so-called electrolysis, and you produce hydrogen from that. And if you can get your electricity from renewable sources like solar, uh, then you can produce hydrogen in a green way. You can also produce hydrogen from from fossil fuels like gas, um, natural gas. Uh, If you do that for it to be green, you need to be able to uh, somehow lock away or sequester the, the CO2 that's a side effect. Uh, Once you've produced your hydrogen in a green way, then you can transport it around the world. Um, You can use it in hydrogen fuel cells, which is an alternative pathway for electric vehicles, or you can use it as as a heat source in the same way that we burn natural gas. You can burn hydrogen in a similar way. So it's potentially a very useful green way of transporting energy. I think the big question is about the cost of setting those infrastructure to enable those because, yes, we do have a lot of resources for renewable energy, but people say that it doesn't give me any impact on my my utility bills because of the expenses that's built towards the infrastructure. Um, So how much does it actually cost to build that and then how viable is it to do that when we are thinking about giving up a coal um, industry? So, so the say so the viability of well, there's there's sort of two two segments to that question. One is the cost of renewable energy, um, which has been steadily declining for for many many years now. Um, so I think we'll get to the point where uh, renewable sources, at the margin, are probably cheaper than fossil fuel sources. But there is the challenge in integrating a lot of renewables into the uh, into the electricity network that we have. So that's as you start to integrate more and more renewables, it becomes more and more expensive to try and maintain the system. 
As far as hydrogen is concerned, there are some, some big questions still remaining, whether it can be produced um, cost-effectively enough to make it worthwhile. And I think we'll, we'll really discover that over the next few years to see whether there's a lot of big investments that people are putting in place at the moment and to see whether these will start to pay off. And if they can become scalable and effective, would the, they eventually be able to offset the, the downside of phasing out coal? Um, it's, it's, it's a good question. I, I suspect not, not just these, not just hydrogen alone or renewables alone, but possibly a combination of that combined with you know, copper exports, lithium exports, et cetera, um, they could start to offset some of the, some of the costs of reducing um, coal production. But then also keep in mind over the long term, the reason we're doing all of this over the long term is to reduce the effect of climate change. Um, and so over the long term, if the projections are correct, then over the long term it will pay off. Yeah, and isn't it interesting that the politics and the impact of it? Because, like internationally, we have that dilemma. Uh, we've got that regionally within Australia as well, where we're asking some regions to to reduce jobs, and others will get the new infrastructure spend. So, so that makes it really hard. So. Is there some sort of policy framework that Australia should be adopting to resolve some of these issues? I think in terms of regional effects, regional costs and benefits differing, uh, we do have experience with that in Australia. We actually have regional adjustment quite a lot and we have had regional adjustment a lot historically. If you think about um, the microeconomic reforms that took place in the sort of late 1990s and 2000s, reducing tariffs and so on, there was big regional adjustments that took place in parts of Victoria, in parts of New South Wales as manufacturing activity. So, you know, car manufacturing, textiles, clothing and footwear manufacturing and so on, as, as that sort of changed, um, there were a lot of, there's a lot of regional adjustment programs, retraining, all of those lessons, I think, from, from the micro-reform era would be, would be applicable um, to the climate change era. But what's really important and what sadly we haven't had in Australia is that effective, effective climate change policy needs to be predictable and it needs to be in place for the long term. Now, for whatever reason, since you know, the mid-2000s, our climate policy hasn't been stable and it hasn't really been predictable. Um, so it's really, really important that... Um, that it is so, otherwise we, we will end up with adjustment costs that will be very, very hard to manage. And that would be the same in business as well. So some of your big businesses in the, well, in the mining sector that as the renewable sector or sustainable um, resources, that if they change the way they're doing, the policy framework that they have to allow them to do that to continue long into the future would be pretty important. Would that be right? I think, yeah, it's, it's absolutely crucial. I mean, if, if you think about what we're trying to do in reducing emissions, um, um, the, the, there's, a, there's a famous British economist, um, Lord Nicholas Stern, said that, that what's, what's required is the biggest capital reallocation since the Industrial Revolution. So what he means is that if we're, if we're to reduce emissions and address climate change, capital has to go into new places um, that it's never gone before. 
But if you're going to have that sort of capital reallocation, you have to have a very predictable environment. I mean, it ultimately has to be done by the private sector and for the private sector to be able to confidently invest in the new things that they will need to invest in, they have to be able to look forward and see that there's some predictability there from, from government. It's like I mean, the that, that's exactly right. It's like the incentives to be provided to those companies. And I've seen it in Canberra, there's a big battery project going on and, you know, there's a cloud funding happening so that you get the buy-in from the community, but express and demonstrate the, the benefit that we will get and as economy and the business will get. That's right. I mean, I think um, if, if, if governments can provide as predictable an environment as possible, then, then the community and business will be able to respond. And at the end of the day, as I said, the governments can't actually fix this. It, it, it is everybody that needs to fix this. Um, um, and large corporations, investors, people looking at where their super funds are invested, all of these sorts of activities will be needed um, in order to ultimately get this big reallocation of capital that's required. So that's really a bipartisan approach that will survive change of government. It need, that, that's basically what it needs to be. It needs to be bipartisan. Um, if you look at any of the big reforms that we've successfully done in Australia, they've always been bipartisan and we've never had a successful reform that wasn't bipartisan. And so that's a really important thing going forward. Yeah, interesting with an election coming up, mate. <laughs> Very interesting and, you know, unfortunately the short-term short term politics and the short-term gains from not being bipartisan sometimes outweigh the, the longer-term benefits. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, David. This is uh, probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest topic um, at the moment um, that has significant impact on Australia. Um, thanks. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, thank you for joining us, David and um, Young and Chris. This has been the RSM Talk Big podcast. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. Talk Big. Create, save and protect with RSM.